Hello, welcome to PMQ Learning Outcome 7. And in this session, we're going to look at uh, the project scope or managing the project scope. Um, so we're going to look at what scope is in terms of outputs, outcomes and benefits. So some definitions really here. Um, the scope of a project could be described as all of the outputs, all of the outcomes and all of the benefits and all the work to do that. So managing scope is a process whereby we understand what those outputs are, we understand what those outcomes are, and we understand what those benefits are, and we deliver them in a controlled way. So let's just break that down a little bit more. Um, outputs. Um, an output is a product or a deliverable. It's something the project produces. So an example um, could be that we've produced an electron microscope, something very technical, or it could be a house, or anything that's tangible, or a new process. An outcome is the capability that we gain from having that output. So this is now the electron microscope example, is now given to the laboratory. Um, we've tested it, we've trained up the users in its use, we've got all the uh, supporting technology in place. So we've now got an outcome, a capability, of using the microscope for its intended purposes. The benefit is the tangible improvement that we get from that outcome and that output. So this is now we start to use the electron microscope and we start to now discover new things um, or we start to earn money by um, selling our services that, um, from use of the electron microscope. So we've got outputs, outcomes and benefits. Now, often we sometimes start with the output and say, look, I've got this product. What can I use it for? What benefit will it be? And there are some inventions that, that sort of do that. But in a project, it is more, it is more effective um, to uh, take the benefit that you want and say, well, what are the benefits we want? We've got to save money. We want to do something faster, slicker, better. Okay. What outcome do I need? What capability do I need to do that? And once I've established that, we then go and look for a solution and say, ah, well, now there's a range of things I could do to achieve that benefit. And I'm going to choose this. And then that would be the output. And then from then on, we would then break that output down into its constituent components. And when we start looking at what breakdown structures and product breakdown structures, we'll see that's how we do it. So managing the scope. This is all about making sure that we define the scope nice and early on. We define the benefits in the business case. We define the requirements, what the product must do to achieve those benefits. We start then to come up with a solution and we break that solution down in the planning and in the uh, deployment phase. And we use the breakdown structures to do that. We understand the, the constituent parts. And then, of course, we try to control and protect the scope because the last thing we want is uncontrolled scope creep on a project where the, the project just gets bigger and fatter and consumes far more money and takes far too long. So we want to control the scope. And we do that through change control and through configuration management. Um, things to consider when we're developing the scope. Um, 
what's in scope and what's out of scope. In other words, drawing a boundary around the project is vitally important because what we don't want to do is deliver less than our customers expect or do more work than we need to and duplicate the work of somebody else. So if I'm building a house, um, where does my project end? Does it end at the gate? Who's building the road? Maybe it's a little new, a new um, estate we're building here. Um, who's building the road? Is the council building the road or are we building the road? And if the council are building the road and we're building the house, what about the pavement? Where, where's the joints? Where's the interface? And this can be represent quite a lot of risk in projects. So when we start to approach scope management, we need to draw boundaries around things. Um, also, we can often have these great aspirations um, and we throw everything into the project. You know, the scope is huge, um, multiple requirements, but we just don't have the time or the money or the resources to actually deliver all of that. So we've got to be careful that we, we balance what we're delivering with the constraints. Making sure our assumptions are clear as well. We've assumed you were doing this. Well, I assumed you were doing it. And of course that leads us into conflict and, and uh, not a really a path we want to go down. So making sure that we put our constraints, our assumptions in, we understand the interfaces, what's in and what's out of scope. These are some basic questions that we should be asking quite early on in the project and continue to ask. So once we've um, understood what the project is for, we start to eventually develop a solution from the requirements. And as we start to develop that solution, we break it down. So let's say the solution is a, a house or an electron microscope. Okay, we've got to go and produce that. So let's say we're going to build that. We're a supplier and we're actually doing that. We now need to break down the, the whole summary, the product itself at the top level, the house, down into bedrooms, uh, foundations, um, taps, uh, white goods, all of those things. We start to break it down, decompose it down, atomize it, I think is a term I've heard used. And if we're looking at the products, we use the product breakdown structure, a hierarchical diagram that shows us how the project breaks down into its constituent parts. And this is a really useful product, uh, a, a useful diagram at least, because what it does, it allows us to identify the products. And once you've identified the products, you can create a specification and more importantly, attach acceptance criteria to them before you start to make them. Very important to have the test before you start the journey. We can also use the product breakdown structure to help us um, to gain acceptance from the stakeholders. So if there's something missing, they're going to spot it, but it also helps us to do bottom-up estimating, analytical estimating. Now, if we take a slightly different view, rather than looking at uh, nouns in terms of products, we look at verbs in terms of activities, we create a diagram that looks virtually the same from a distance, and this is the work breakdown structure. So instead of having products in it, it now has verbs, doing words. So before we might have had bedroom, now we've got build the bedroom. Uh, before we might have had install the drains, sorry, before we would have uh, drains, now we have install the drains. So you can see there's a difference. 
And of course, the work breakdown structure is certainly needed at the lower working level of the project. And again, it helps us to understand all of the work that we need to do. It helps us to spot anything that we've missed. And it also helps us with our estimating of the effort that needs to be put into the project. And, and the work breakdown structure and the product breakdown structure are often used together with the product breakdown structure at the top level, and then underneath the, the products, we have the work breakdown structure. But they're often, again, sometimes used interchangeably as well. There are no really uh, big rules to define how you do this. These are just tools to help us discover and develop the scope of a project. The cost breakdown structure looks at things slightly differently, same diagram in a way, but it's just a hierarchical breakdown of the overall cost of the project, normally aligned to the organization's budgeting system and accounting system there. Um, and it helps us to establish a cost baseline for the project. And it also helps us to see where the money is allocated, how the budget is distributed um, across the various components of the project. Now let's look at another aspect of scope. And this is Learning Outcome 7, Part 2, <coughs> Requirements Management. So how do we establish the scope through requirements management? And there's a process involved. So first of all, let, let's just talk about what requirements are, because there's an awful lot of confusion about this in some circles. A requirement is not a solution. A requirement is a statement of a need of a stakeholder. So um, I need a new laptop is not a requirement. It is a, a, a statement of, a, of an intended solution. I need a means of working from home. Now, the answer may well be a laptop, but there may be other solutions. But I need a means of working from home is a statement of a requirement. It's a functional requirement. And of course, requirements are really important because what they are, they are the link between the users who have the needs and, and the developer who is coming up with the design and the solution. And those two worlds join, they're joined at the hip, as it were, by the requirements. And so as long as the requirements are, are robust and they're prioritized and they're affordable at the beginning of a project, and as long as the developer keeps going back and touching those requirements, going back and reviewing them to make sure every step of the development meets the requirements, all should be well. And when we get to the end of the project and we hand over the final product to the users, they test it against the original requirements, and indeed we've been progressively testing it, then there will be no surprises at the end. So requirements management is a vitally important subject and lays the foundation really for, 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 for developing and delivering the scope of a project. There are a, a number of techniques involved and it is a science in itself for some organizations and there's a process. So if we just talk about the process briefly um, and I would recommend again if you're studying for the PMQ exam that you go and look in the PMQ book and spend a bit more time in here. We're going to go through this very uh, very high level, um, but there's some depth in here that you probably would need to, uh, to learn and understand. So the first step in requirements management is we don't create requirements, we gather them. They're already there. They're in the heads, the minds of the users. And so what we have to do is act as a sort of detective agency, as it were, and we've got to go out and find out what it is 
what their needs are. And there are a number of techniques for doing that. We'll mention user stories in a minute. Um, then we analyze the requirements. So this is now making sure that they are, uh, that they, they are true statements, that there are no overlaps or contradictory requirements there, um, that they are realistic, um, and you know, they're not mutually exclusive, and there's no gaps. Then we justify the requirements. Now this is where we use, a no well, we could use a number of techniques here, but one of the techniques we use here is this prioritization sort of acronym, MOSCO, uh, which stands for must have, should have, could have, won't have. So what we're effectively doing, we're ranking our requirements in terms of these are really important. You cannot live without these. If I'm not able to do this as a function, if I'm not able to work from home, to use the previous example, then I can't work at all. So it's a must-have. The should-haves are the ones that are important, pretty important. It'd be difficult to work without them, but we could do. Could do. So you might say that, you know, a car without air conditioning, uh, it must have air conditioning. Well, no, the car will still be fine without it. But it's probably, in this modern age, something that's very important to people. But then you've got the could-haves. So these are the kind of nice-to-haves. And these are the ones that may well not get delivered if we're running into difficulty in terms of time and money. So by ranking them, we gain agreement with the stakeholders and we're able to make sure that we can afford them. And if we're delivering them, we can focus on giving the best value to the most important requirements. Um, so we justify them. Once we've got agreements that these are the requirements that we deliver, particularly in a linear process here, in the linear life cycle, we then baseline them. And that is version one. Now, if we want to change them, now we're required to go through the change control process because we formally agreed them. We can't just keep on changing them, otherwise the project will spiral, spiral out of control. And then once we've baselined them, we deliver them. So then you get into solution mode, constantly now testing the requirements or the, or the solution against the requirements as we go. And that's where the, the V diagram, we're not going to talk about the V diagram, but the V diagram shows the, the development and the testing, the verification and validation of the requirements through the life cycle. So what we're trying to avoid here is the solution going off at a tangent and leaving the requirements behind. And we get to the end of the project and the users, the stakeholders say, well, I'm not happy that this house you built me, this electron microscope you've given me, this whatever it might be, it doesn't meet my requirements. We should never be in that situation if we're continually checking our solution against the requirements. It's a common problem where the technical people delivering the solution forget the user's needs and the two worlds get further apart. And usually that's not a happy outcome but good requirements management usually stops that from happening. Now, when we come into the iterative uh, lifecycle world, we need to think just slightly differently about requirements. In the linear lifecycle, we need the requirements to be baselined in their entirety before we really can start delivering a solution. But because of the uncertain, fast-moving world of the iterative lifecycle, um, maybe developing a solution that is brand new, uh, the technology is changing, there's a lot of uncertainty about what the users want. 
Um, this is where we start to develop a solution. We put it into the hands of the users. They use it, they try it out, and then they feed back the fact that there are requirements that they didn't originally know they wanted, but now having used the product, they realize there are features they want. So that allows this, this um, iterative lifecycle, allows that to happen. We often use user stories in the iterative lifecycle um, world. We, we could use them in any world. The user stories, I would say, is, is, a, is a fantastic tool. And I'd recommend that you, you take a, a deeper look at uh, user stories and the use of them. But what the user story uh, is, is that we, we talk to the users and we ask them what their needs are. We say, what is it you want to achieve? And they'll often think in solution terms, but we're trying to work out what the function are they want rather than the solution. Um, so what is it you want? We find the, the stakeholder. What is it you want to happen? Um, why do you want that to happen? And how would we measure that? So once we've got that information, we can start to put this together in the user story. And the user story would read a sort of sentence, if you like, with three clauses. As the user, so insert there whoever this person or this group of people are. So as the consumer, or our example here, as the vice president of marketing, okay, I want to be able to do this so that I can do this. And then once we've done that, we can start adding acceptance criteria to it and then we can start to deliver it. So the user story is a great, great tool. T take a look at that if you're not familiar with the user stories.